Happy Friday, guys, and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Dubs. I'm your host, Bill T. Only two weeks away until I'm going to be in Southern California. Matter of fact, next weekend I'll be there. So by the time you're listening to the next podcast, I'll already be in Southern California. I'll be at the ID Buzz event with the limo bus. And uh, if you're out in the area, come by, say hi. If you haven't heard about it, uh, if you've got a VW bus, they're allowing 300 buses down to Huntington Beach to be parked there Thursday night if you want to get in early. And I can send you guys the link to that. Matter of fact, I'm not going to send it to you. It's going to be in the description of the podcast, but I'll put it down below. If you've got a bus, you're going to be in Southern California. You can get in the uh, Thursday night for the Friday ID Buzz event, which is going to be the debut of the new VW electric bus. So check it out. Come say, hey, if you see me down there, I'll have a bunch of stickers and some stuff. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to be selling shirts or any of that kind of stuff, but uh as of right now, I'm just bringing the bus just to hang out. It's going to be a quick weekend for me. Looks like uh, I'll be hitting the Friday event for the ID Buzz. I'll be doing Octo on Saturday, hoping to get by the ISP West open house. And uh, I don't know what's going on on Sunday, so I'll probably just head back for Sunday. I've got a summer planned full of stuff with my family. So that's the only weekend I can make it is the first weekend of June. So the rest of the month, I'm going to miss the events, and uh, it is what it is, but you know, you guys have a good time for me if you're not there, and represent. Wear your Let's Talk Dubs gear. Share the podcast. As far as other shows, if you guys are going to be headed up to Bugarama this weekend, say hey to all the Let's Talk Dubs peeps. Matter of fact, you guys wear your Let's Talk Dubs shirt, so everybody knows that you guys listen to Let's Talk Dubs. I'm not going to make it to Bugarama, but uh, shout out to all my buddies that are going to be there. Appreciate all you guys. And I look forward to hopefully seeing some of you guys at a couple other events this summer. It gets crazy. Life's wild. But uh, make sure you stop by and see the guys at Ross Wolf. Check out some of their stuff. Maybe pick up some bus deck lid hinges, man. Walk up to Ross Wolf and be like, yo, I listen to Let's Talk Dubs. And that's how I know about you. So make sure that they know where you heard of Ross Wolf from. And uh, say hey to Jason and Jared. Go support the sponsors that support your favorite podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe to VW Trends Magazine at vwtrendsmagazine.com. Do what you need to do as a faithful listener to Let's Talk Dubs. Because why? Because I bring it every week. And the podcast I'm bringing this week, I'm really excited to bring to you guys. Greg Aronson is a guy that's, uh, the name is very familiar when you hear it because there's the the Aronson Holmes car and it's the, you know, the original cow look car. And there's been so much said about that car and the name Greg Aronson that comes up with it. But Greg Aronson is so much more than just that cow look car. Greg Aronson's got an unbelievable history that's been in the VW industry being the A in fat performance. But we get the story all the way back from the early beginnings and the evolution from streetcar to business to off-road racing. And this is kind of this is gonna be one of my first podcasts that really starts to dip a dip a heavy toe into the off-roading world, which is just another part of the VW world where so much is launched from there. All the humble beginnings start with Volkswagens and fat performance was there in the beginning. And there's a lot of that understanding. You get the insight as to why VW didn't support off-road racing in the heyday and how Toyota got involved and so many layers that started in the VW world. And, and Greg was a part of that. And I'm excited to bring you guys this podcast because not only do we get so much history on the early Aronson Holmes car, DKP, um, the early intricacies of what the scene was like back there. In this podcast, there's so many stories from 
kids getting out of high school, starting businesses, street racing, evolving into, you know, adult business world, and then dealing with so many layers of the story. It's so cool. And I'm super excited that I got Greg to come on the podcast. And that's a thanks to uh, his friend, Craig Watkins. And Craig wrote a book. His book's called Kusmal Chronicles, the story of Roland Kusmal's contribution to Porsche's total crushing domination of sports car racing. He reached out to me because he's a podcast listener. He's also an engineer, author, and hardcore auto motorsports enthusiast. And he wrote this book, and I'm not a big book guy, as you guys know, but this book reads like the podcast listens, and that's what I really love. He's got excerpts in here that he can, uh, you know, if, if you like the podcast, you'll love this book. And it's a book about motorsports, engineering, Porsche, specifically to Porsche. And Craig was part of the uh, Flying Lizard Racing Team. And it's so great that, uh, you know, he, he stumbled across the podcast some way, somehow, and he's the one that put... Uh, Greg and I together because he and Greg raced in the eighties and uh, he said, you know, Greg's uh, and I, and I've been wanting to get Greg's story for a long time. So I'm, I'm thankful really for Craig to, to, to connect us and, uh, and have us get this podcast done. I'm really excited to bring it to you guys because it it shares an insight uh, into just another layer into that history from another set of eyes and parts that go on further because there's life after cow luck. So maybe that's maybe that'll be the title of this podcast, Life After Cow Luck. Uh, it's, it's a great podcast. So make sure you guys uh, share this with all your friends. If, if you're liking the off-road stuff, I, I'm trying to build uh, some inroads into doing a little bit of off-road history. And so much of that starts here in my hometown, Las Vegas. So I am working with people to try to put those things together. But without any further ado, guys, let's get into Life After Cow Luck with Greg Aronson on Let's Talk Dubs. You probably don't know that there's a new Volkswagen out that doesn't look like a Volkswagen. Okay, everybody. So on today's show, um, you know, everybody's heard a lot of stories from a lot of places. And my job as being the steward of history is to kind of track down all those people. Maybe some of the voices we don't hear enough of in, on today's podcast. I'm really excited to welcome Greg Aronson, who is the A in Fat Performance, and bring him on the podcast and discuss a little bit of his history that uh, maybe some of you don't know very well. So, uh, Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Greg, the the way that we always start the the podcast is with one question: What's your VW story, and how did you get into Volkswagens? Well, um, when I was fifteen, and now this is not a Volkswagen story, but when I was fifteen, um, I bought a Model A Ford that was the motor was in a box, mm-hmm. two hundred and fifty bucks. And I guess at that point, I I didn't realize I was a gearhead because I was too young at 15. But so that's what I did. And um, I got it running and then I turned 16 and drove it. 
And all of a sudden that wasn't so good anymore because it seemed like the more I worked on the mechanical brakes, the less it stopped. After a little um, fender bender, I guess you could say, on the way back from the beach, I decided that the Model A wasn't going to cut it now that I have my license. So, so I bought a Volkswagen. And was there anything in particular that, like, did you see at that time in high school, people were, they had Volkswagens and it was kind of one of the cool things. And because you, you know, when you're starting out as a young kid, you get impressions by like your neighbor's got a car or this guy, or these things that you see that kind of draw you towards a certain, a certain type of car. What, what brought you to get the Volkswagen? Like what made you pick? I mean, from a Model T to a Volkswagen, it's a pretty good jump. Yeah. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't remember why, why I picked the Volkswagen, but that's what I did. And, um, you know, I just did some minor things, wheels and tires. I got a, a couple cheap paint jobs done. Um, and somehow, again, I, I think Ron Fleming's girlfriend or wife-to-be or whatever of that at that time went to high school a year older than I was. So maybe, I, I think I saw Ron's car. And so after I had the Volkswagen for a little while, I – kind of looked into getting involved with DKP mm -hmm. and um, so and that's kind of how it started I think and what year is this you said you're about 16 or 17 when this that would have been in 67 um, during that time of your life things happen so quickly because <laughs> yeah. I think I, I think I kind of after I was in the club a little bit it was probably um early 69 or late 68 that I, I got the idea of doing the white car out of it, but shoot, I had two cheap paint jobs in, in between in a year, I think, or so. Now, was that on the same, is that on the same car or a different car? That was the same car. Um, so your first bug I, was the 63. My first car was the 63. And what'd you, and, um, what'd you pay for it when you bought it? Remember? Oh God, you're, you're asking questions. Oh, that's, just... that's, that's, that's a long time ago. I, I don't remember. I don't have a clue about that. Uh -huh. Um, when I first got in the club, my, my two cheapo paint jobs, one of them was like a metallic dark Brown and one of them was anthracite. And to be honest with you, I don't remember the order. I think anthracite was the second one, which like I got in the club with. And, um, anyway, we used to have all these events one of the events that DKB, DKP used to do was the Carlsbad Drag Day thing that we used to do quite often. Uh -huh. And um, somebody in our club won a gift certificate for a select -a drop You got to realize that back in those days, the look for the club cars were you know, Goodyear blue streaks on the rear and Porsche wheels and raised up front end. Maybe a couple guys even painted their under their wheel wells white. Mm -hmm. um, so opposite of cow look. Right. So um, I ended up, to, I don't, again, I don't remember who won this gift certificate, but I bought this select drop certificate for 50 bucks for a, <laughs> place over in garden grove you know that was an installed deal so really so i took my car over there and had that done then i i, I had this vision um of the doing the white car and um i kind of got connected with beckers um 
I had done the rear deck lid, which is a fiberglass, you know, used to be a hood pin kind of installation, but I actually fiberglassed a VW hinge mechanism to the bottom of the fiberglass hood. So it was like, almost like it was a factory deal Mm -hmm. and then took it to Becker's and again, I had this vision apparently. Um, so I, Wanted to remove the crone and kind of do uh, what I what later would be called like a Euro look kind of deal um, or, or a cow bug. But obviously, I didn't know what I was doing. But And he didn't know what he was doing. He charged me $50 to fill 49 holes. <laughs> so and that's a dollar, dollar a hole. <laughs> it wasn't much longer after that. I think he was charging about $50 a hole to do it because, he, you know, it was so much work to do it. But, um, anyway, we got it done. Um, I kind of went a different direction. It was lowered in the front. I didn't have blue streaks. I had Pirelli's and I, I found a set of BRMs and went that route. And, um, basically the white on black high contrast look was my, kind of my goal. And, um, obviously that worked. Yeah. And, and the dash now you did the plexiglass dash in there too. Yes, I did. Yeah, originally, as a matter of fact, um, when it was the other color, mm-hmm. one of the other colors, I painted the dash with wrinkle paint and put little, um, they weren't LED lights back then, but little little lights across the, little, the top of the dash. So there was a bunch of holes they had to fill on the dash too. Yeah. And, and then I did the black plexiglass thing. It took me a couple of them to do it because the first one I broke putting it on, but, um, what well, that it, was kind of, I, I think the interesting thing is, you know, even when I look at like in the, in the eighties, right. When guys were customizing their cars in the eighties, the, 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 the mode was like, I'm going to modernize my car. I'm going to take this antiquated car and modernize it, you know, and do, you know, whether it's power windows or, this or whatever it was to make it more of a contemporary type car. And with like the plexiglass dash, that's a real kind of a, a kind of a futuristic look. Cause back then plexiglass is like, it's the new thing. It's the carbon fiber of the, t- of the time really, you know? Right. Right. And, and, and it, it, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, um, during the time when I was doing the, the white car mm-hmm. and that dash, I worked for a, um, uh, I worked for some foreign auto parts stores for a while. It was a Beck Arnley store. I think that was maybe the one. Yeah, it was a Beck Arnley store in Fullerton. And um, they had parts and pieces for all kinds of cars. So they had Lucas switches and Smith's gauges. And so all this stuff that I kind of found on shelves and bought it, I kind of introduced to that dash. So it had the cool to- toggle switches that were, were Lucas in the, the cool tack that was a Smith's tack, which nobody ever heard of that before. Right. Um, so they all kind of had the, the look that looked good with that black dash. And, and your, and your mode of doing it was just like, you had this vision like, Oh, you know, it would be, and, and you're kind of, 
if, if I'm getting this right. So working at this auto parts place, you're seeing all kinds of stuff for different cars. And you're like, oh, that would be cool. That Because, you know, one of the things about the hobby is always try to be unique, you know, and make your car different than the next guys. Oh, yeah, well, you don't have this or you don't have that. And what's funny is over time in everybody's quest to be different, there becomes this assimilation where everybody kind of starts going down the same road. Now, what did everybody say when, because it makes sense, right? In the early days of drag racing, everybody's kind of going with a gasser look, front end up, weight already pushed to the back so you get traction and get going. But what's kind of the, when you lower the car, is, is, is everybody thinks it's cool right out of the gate or everybody's like, well, you know, that's your thing. It's different. Or well, do you remember how it was received? Uh, I think it was received pretty well because I was, I was winning car shows and stuff like that. Um, and God, it wasn't long before Becker was just, Becker's was just swamped with doing reproductions of my car in different colors. Oh, really? Know, for, for many years. Part of my goal also, because I was into the performance thing, um, you know, I put bucket seats in it and I'm 6'5", so that helped me fit in the car. Well, yeah, that's in the bucket seats you put in there. They're they're fiberglass buckets, or what were they out of? Oh yeah, they were the they were the real basic stuff. And because my butt was so wide, I had to cut the seat and <laughs> re glass it back together to make it so my hip bones would fit inside. And well, um, and well, you so it's interesting. And there's a couple of things that that you mentioned on that I want to maybe touch back on. So right out of the gate at a young age, you're mechanically inclined. Like I mean, that's a pretty big steak to eat to take a a, a box of engine parts and assemble an engine. Right. You know? And then to to start dabbling in a little bit of fiberglass work and, and integrate the hinge part into the pin on deck lid, which, you know, do you, so norm as an individual, you like to see certain things and you start getting, oh, I think I can do that. And then you start going down the road of like, you know, messing with fiberglass because engine building fiberglass, two different worlds, right? Right. Yeah. And was it out of, uh, out of a necessity like, hey, I don't have the money to pay for it. I'm going to do it on my own. Or was there like a sense of pride to do it on your own? Uh, yeah, I just I just did everything myself, really. Um, although the first engine in that Volkswagen, when I first got into the club, because it was a, a 40 horse, and mm -hmm. uh, Ron Fleming was, um, he worked at a little VW shop in Santa Ana. Um and he was doing some engines on the side with another guy in the club, Don Crane, um, who was had no mechanical ability. I don't understand why he was involved, but <laughs> any anyway, they built um, me. Uh, you always need a parts washer. Um, um, Forty horse with a big bore kit in it. What I don't remember what that is. You know, it's like yeah, a, yeah, thirteen hundred or something like that um, for a little while, and then. I started doing my own stuff in that white car. I actually had three dual Weber engines. Um, in the beginning I had a, a 1700 mm -hmm. with dual 48s that ran like 1410. Wow. Um, you know, we didn't use big pistons back then. Then, uh, then I made it an 1800, um, with close ratio gears and stuff. And that one actually went, like 1350. Wow. And, and then later, um, the last engine I had was a, a 1900, which had back in those days, that was a 78 Ocrasa and 88s. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that car, that motor actually ran 1270s. And this was a car. So at, at some point, do you just stop or was this still your daily car you're driving? 
This is my daily car. Wow. I used to, um, I was doing engines for people as time went by and that was my only car for a while. And I used to, um, take the passenger seat out and put, uh, when I have an engine apart, I take the heads and the block and the parts and take it up to the machine shop at the auto parts <laughs> store that I used to work at. And he'd call me back later in the day when stuff was ready and I go pick it up. So, um, so it was your parts in, in the beginning. It was, it was just that until I bought a bus for 60 bucks and, did a little work on it, and that was my tow vehicle because I used to drag race quite quite a bit. So, um, so you tow you would tow but, the you would tow the car the white car with the bus, with the white bus, yes. Oh wow! And That's it was cool. it was kind of tagged the toilet by <laughs> a bunch of people in the club, <laughs> like a play on the word tow tow rig. It's the toilet. <laughs> yeah, it was it was toilet colored too. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. And so, you know, my, my question is in this early day of doing this kind of stuff, right? So, so Ron's building VW engines and you're kind of hanging out with Ron, picking up on how to build this. I mean, is anybody at this point formally trained in any of this? Um, well, Ron was, mm-hmm. um, when I worked at that auto parts store, um, I worked in the parts room on, or in the parts department on Saturdays, but during the week I would go over after school and work with a guy in the machine shop. So we did a little VW stuff. I actually helped built, uh, learn how to do engines and starting with MGBs and that sort of thing. So you were just learning the, 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 the basic stuff, the basic understanding of machining tolerances and, and things to and that. Assemb- and assembly and, and that sort of thing. So then I started doing, um, engines in my, my parents' garage and, and I was really pretty busy doing it. And, and then I, um, I actually worked for Gene Berg for a summer for just like three months. Uh-huh. And what I, what I learned there was doing transmissions. Really? So I left there. Ron actually worked there for three years. I worked there for three months, but so I was the the one and only guy that, that, uh, you know, didn't have a shop, but did gearboxes. So anybody in the, uh, the club or friends or whatever that needed transmission work, I was the guy. So I was pretty busy. So you're, so you're doing uh, trans boxes from home now with transaxles. It's, it's an interesting thing, right? I had a, a guy, Prescott Phillips on the podcast, who's kind of the Midwest guy who does stuff for guys up in Indiana and all that stuff. And he builds engines and transmissions. And, and I said, is it easier to build a transmission than an engine? <laughs> and he said, yeah, it's, it's a little easier because of the, the, you know, the assembly of the, the gears and whatnot. And, you know, my friend Jim Barbeau that used to own Desert Racing Performance out here in Las Vegas, uh, I used to watch yeah, him build, I, build trannies. And I, I'm like, you, did you know Jim? Yeah, I did. I did, yeah. So, so, you know Jim. He's a little bit of a hillbilly, and I love the guy. And a uh, close friend of mine. But I'd watch him build transition. like, you don't use anything? He's like, nah, bud, it's all by feel. You know, the, like the way he assembles a transaxle. And it, it's interesting that, you know, with, with something like that, it, it, it kind of gets to a point where it's, it's more muscle memory when you're doing something like that and the fit and how, how pieces kind of come together and you, and after a while you just kind of, you get a feel for it 
And uh, did, did you like building transaxles? Because you're really not known as the transaxle guy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I did a lot of them. Yeah, I did a lot of my own because things would break. You know, we were learning. And uh-huh. when I was when I was going to Orange County, mostly on Wednesday nights, but like for bug-ins and stuff, um, back in those days, we had close ratio gears. We had hardened keys. We welded the gears so they didn't, you know, come apart. Mm-hmm. But they they only made a thing called a beef a diff, right. not a super diff. And I used to um, I used to break the beef a diff, the shaft, because it's all you know the the load was all put on the shaft, not on the housing. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, to give you an idea, one night I I uh, Wednesday night at Orange County was just a whatever sportsman night or whatever they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, I broke my spider gears, towed home, got home about ten thirty, pulled the tranny out, fix it, put it back together, make it to my drafting class at Fullerton Junior College at seven a.m. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, that it, was my life. Because it's, <laughs> it's your it's your only car. Now, interestingly enough, it's you're you're going to a drafting class. You know all that stuff. So your intention when you're young at this age is not like I'm going to build engines. Well, I, I mean, no, what, I was doing I was doing both. Right, um, right, but going to school and stuff, you were—I mean, you were thinking like, ah, when I grow up, I'm going to do—I may, I might be a draftsman, I might be an architect, and then you—and and kind of the hobby gets to the point where like, well, I'm making pretty good money doing this. I should just keep following this, or how, you know, because it seems like you had a plan, maybe going a going a different direction, but ended up doing this. Well, there we also had something else going on then. Um, going to school wasn't my first choice. Um, but we had a war in Vietnam and that kept me from going. Right. So when I started going to FJC, you know, I went, you know, I was, you know, going five days a week. Then the next semester I had a setup. So I had Tuesdays and Thursdays off because I had work Mm -hmm. in, in my garage. And then the following semester I had a setup where I had, I only went to school on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then then they had the lottery for the draft Mm -hmm. and I was number 355. I didn't go back to school the next day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I was done. So, um, and I, and I was busy enough, you know, that, um, and I was making a lot of money for a kid living at home. Um, you know, just going back to that beef Mm -hmm. story. Um, also we used to go to the beach all the time. So, um, I used to stop at crown manufacturing down in Newport beach and you know, they're the one that made the beef a diff and, and I kept breaking that stuff. Like I said, so I stopped, I don't even remember the guy's name that was running the place, but yeah, I was telling them that, you know, you really need to make a, a housing to support the shafts better. So they don't break the, you know, the main shaft mm-hmm. and he whips out the, a wood plug for the first super diff for a swing axle. Really? So I was on board. I bought the first 10. I had them stocked up in my closet at my, in my parents' house. (laughs) So, I mean, I was pretty busy doing gearboxes. Nobody else did them. Like I said, Yeah. Uh, you know, um, 
And where were you guys so, getting like, like who started manufacturing or where do you get the close ratio gears? Like, I mean, well, they were making those then Jim uh-huh. gear was the company that was making them originally. So, you know, I just buy them from Gene Berg or I think he was kind of like a dealer for him at the time. And, and who taught you, like who taught you how to build a transmission? Um, I, I can kind of say that Berg did, but I think pretty much, I had a little room. He gave me a book. It had an exploded view and, and, and of the transmission and I took it apart and, you know, learned a little bit from him, but mostly learned by doing, you know? And uh, what was it like that, like the experience and back then was like, was Gene Berg the big name in the VWC and it was like kind of cool to work there or was it like, was it, did, was there this thing like, ah, Gene's a tough character, man. You work for him. It was, it was different. And I, I don't know, I, that's, I was doing so much work in my, in my parents' garage that it was like, I worked there for a few months and it's like, I, I don't need to do this. Right. It, it, as soon as somebody tells you what to do, you're like, you know what? I can build transmissions at home and do whatever I want. <laughs> Stop and go yeah, to the and beach. I was, or, you know, I was learning the, I was learning the whole deal. You know, you get to mark up the parts a little bit, you get to make money on the labor and it was, it was pretty good. Yeah. I got to buy the best stuff for my car. You know, I used, you know, I wanted a new crankshaft. I could get it, you know? No, absolutely. And, and who's like, who's the spot where you're buying all the Okrasa stuff and all that? Like who, who's supplying most of that stuff? We used to drive to Inglewood. Mm-hmm. There was an old guy there named Earl McMills. And that was the guy that we would in the very beginning buy some of that stuff. Now, what was he doing with all this stuff over there? I, you know, I don't know the original where, I mean, he was an old dude. He was 70, 80 years old back then. That's what I recall anyway. But like um, a German car mechanic or what? No, he just had the, all this performance <laughs> stuff. Like Don Crane, that's the guy I mentioned from our club. He was the first one to have 48 IDAs and, um, Everybody was just amazed. Yeah. Did, did they even make manifolds for 48s to 48 IDAs to, to VWs? Yeah, well, in, uh, in the very beginning when they first started get, getting stuff from Earl McMills, I don't remember the source. But back in those days, you could buy empty parts, Dino's Dinosaurs, mm-hmm. you know, Gene Berg. So they were already you know, doing did, the 48s. Yeah, he was making sumps and manifolds and and and... Dino's Dinosaurs was making all that stuff also. And then there was the empty stuff. I mean, a, a couple of years later when I was um, doing the engine for Tar Babe, I mean, that's when you could get by empty 88s were slipper skirt, mala pistons mm-hmm. with a Dykes top ring and pretty custom stuff. And I mean, at, at this time, it's like there's a lot because VWs are still a new vehicle. They're still producing them new the aftermarket world sees things and, and, and things are coming to like, you're kind of at the time when, Oh, look, they just came out with the slipper skirt 88. They just came out with this. Oh, look. And then I, I think Horvath tells me NPR comes out with the nine 92s. Is it the 92s or. Right, 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 right. And, and those were, cause we were kind of groomed within the Gene Berg, early Gene Berg era, mm-hmm. which he totally didn't believe in 92s. So we used Schmidt 88s on most everything we did except for that, my race motor that used the Mala stuff, but are the MP pistons. Now um, you have the, you own that 63 for 
how many, how long, what, what you, around what year do you sell it? And do you have, do you have tar babe at the same time you have the 63? No, 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 no. Um, um, so I got the car in 67, um, first two years I do two paint jobs. Then I do make it white. Um, I, I did that while I was still in high school. So I graduated in June of 69, drove the white car, um, like when I was going to Fullerton college for the next almost two years. Mm-hmm. And I just was a little bit over it. I, I kind of moved on and I, I wanted to get a Porsche. So I got a 912, um, that I did. And I'm obviously to do that. I had to sell a white car. So that's where Jim Holmes comes into the deal. He was in DKP before he went into the service. So he was in Vietnam when I got in the club. Mm-hmm. Shortly after he came back, he he bought my car. I sold the engine. I think I yeah, I sold the BRMs. Sold him the car with chrome wheels, and I don't remember, but I think uh, maybe without an engine or whatever. But but pretty much before long, he got it back with BRMs and another you know dual Weber engine in it, and so he drove it longer than I did. Yeah, Jim is a car keeper yeah. and he's back in the day, the guys, this is before we're racing and all that stuff. Like before I was in the club, the guys would meet and wax their car almost every day. Yeah. They would hang on. That's what they did. They waxed their car. <laughs> so never wash their car. They just wax their car. <laughs> <laughs> so he was very good at taking care of the car and he ended up being my roommate. So the car was always around, you know, um, even though it wasn't mine, it still felt um, like it was kind of, like, Oh, there's the car. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah, I mean, he even got an accident and had to, had to replace the car from the, from the dash forward. <laughs> that's a pretty serious accident. I mean, he, he had to redo the plexiglass dash, but he, they put it back together the way it was. And, um, so, and that was before the cover shot was done, if I'm not mistaken, for right. BWs. And, um, now at this point, so, are you guys? So this is late late sixties, early seventies, like sixty nine, seventy era. Yeah. So yeah, it's hard to. It's a, yeah, they're, and they're not exact, but it, so when I was before we opened the shop, mm-hmm. I was still working in my parents' garage. That's when the um, car went to Jim Holmes. That's where I did my nine twelve, and um, that's what I had when we. Actually, what happened, I was working in my parents' garage. Ron finally gave up on working at Gene Berg's. I was so busy. I had cars up in, you know, out in the, out in the street. My dad wasn't real happy about it. Um, <laughs> and plus, my car had to be in the garage every night. And plus, my mom's got, car had to be in the garage every night. So it's like engine stand came down, cars out, cars in, all this stuff. And you're making enough money where you can afford to go rent a place, but it's almost like, yeah. Oh yeah. That's, I kind of lost track. Where is that? So Ron quit Gene Berg's came over to work with me. And that's when my dad said, okay, this is over. <laughs> yeah. You, you know? guys are killing me. I come you home. Can, it's like a mechanic can, shop. Yeah. You can make a living out of my garage, but somebody else isn't going to make a living out of my garage. That's pretty much the way he looked at it. So, <laughs> right. So we went and rented a building, figured we'd work a couple, you know, two or three days a week and have the freedom to go to the beach and do all that stuff you do when you're a kid. Cause see at this time when we rented, um, 
the building in 71, mm-hmm. I had just turned 20. So, I mean, that's think about it today, right? How many 20 year olds are out there starting a business? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. I mean, it, it, it's pretty, it, it kind of shows the character of our earlier generations, you know, where we're just, we get an idea and we're, we're a, a bit stubborn, but we're kind of dead set and committed. Then we just go into this thing. And before we know it, we look up, and we're like, wow, oh, I'm actually making a living. Meanwhile, I didn't know this is what I'm going to do, but now it's time to take the next step. Now, when you guys open the shop, is it kind of like a side job thing? Like we're just going to do this kind of on the side or is it? Big- well, what we thought, I mean, it was a, God, I can't remember this. It was a pretty small unit with like 1200 feet, I think something mm-hmm. like that little narrow industrial building and, you know, roll up door in the back and a little, little office in the front. And, and it, it didn't take long to where we were, you know, bulging at the seams and we stayed in the same complex and got a little bigger unit. We actually stayed there in that co- complex really close to Anaheim stadium till 78. So, Oh wow. So seven years, it's like seven years you're in that spot, huh? Yep. Yeah. And that's, it was in that second building. We were maybe only in the first building for a year, but it was in that next building where um, Ron was racing um, the underdog that belonged to one of our club guys, Doug Gordon. So I kind of got the wild hair to go drag racing too, because I really liked racing my my white car. Mm -hmm. Um, I raced my white car in K and J gas at the bug ends. That was the class. I think they're kind of bug in classes actually. So I decided to build a race car and guys were chopping tops at the time. The Anderson brothers, the Schley brothers. And, and in my opinion, they all kind of looked goofy, mm-hmm. the chop tops, you know, they were kind of flat on the top and a bulge in the back. And um, so I went to Becker's and that guy's such an, was such an artist. He made the, did the chop top on Tarbabe that, uh, you know, it almost looked stock. Right. You could hardly tell that it's the profile chopped. of it looked stock. Right. Which is hard so, to do. It's it's hard to do with it with, you know, obviously by looking at all the other people doing chop tops, it's not an easy feat to do and pull it off and have it have some symmetry and look like it was intended to be that way. Yeah. And the, and the crazy thing, the crazy thing was that Leonard Becker had an idea. So when you chop the top, when you lower the top, it has to get longer right? because of the slope of the rear window and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, he had a cool idea. What he did is he added the, um, the extra length into the cowl between the hood and the windshield. So he moved the windshield back, notched the doors. Top was the same length, but the windshield was back. If you can picture that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's re- so we're in the process of that, and I had pictures and stuff, and I went with – I was with – you know, Ron and the underdog and that group at the uh, Super Nationals. So this would have been 72 mm-hmm. or 71. Anyway, that around that time, I took pictures and I went to the tech director for NHRA. And he told me that that was totally illegal, that I couldn't do that. <laughs> in the rules, it said that the windshield had to be at the stock angle and in the stock location. Really? So I had to take the car back. I mean, the car was still at Becker's, but we had to cut it all apart and do it again. That kind of stretched out the process. Matter of fact, he was kind of tired of working on it. He was so depressed with the deal. So I would go over there after work and help him work on it. And um, So you were friends with, with uh, what's his first name? Becker's first name? Leonard Becker. Yeah, we were. 
we were pretty close. I mean, he painted a number of cars of mine. Um, and so you show yeah, him like, hey, cars. hey, this really hard work that you did doing this top, making it look super cool. They won't let me race like that. So we've got a mod. Yeah, this. it wasn't a pretty story when I told him. <laughs> he was like, get he, it out he of here. Of, he, he didn't touch it for a while. So until <laughs> I kind of went over there and started working with him. But, but anyway, he got it done. And, you know, he got all the accolades and for the job that he did. And um, again, he continued to be the, the guy for many of the clubs around for painting Volkswagens and the Porsches and stuff. And, and, and the vision behind tar babe was like, uh, you know, again, you're doing things with that car that are a little unique in that, in the realm of drag cars at the time yeah, it, with respect to some of the finishes and stuff with that car. I mean, you're always kind of doing things to your own, your own beat. Right. Yeah. That, the race cars of that era were other than the inch pincher, mm-hmm. maybe the Schley brothers car, but even, you know, there was some rough stuff, you know, I guess you could say. Yeah. Um, and you know, I had my success, I guess you could say with the, with the white car, even though we didn't know about it at that time yet. But, right. um, again, I had a vision and went for it. And now, and, and so the goal was, and I, so I have a question about BRMs at that time when people are buying them, is it like those wheels are cool? Those wheels are ugly, but they're light. Like what's the temperament of like the guys? Is, is it all about the weight of the wheels and that's why you want BRMs or is it a look, you know, what's the motivating factor for the BRMs? Oh, I think it was the look. I don't think we were that concerned about the weight. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how easy were they? Were they? Was it synonymous with those wheels cracking back then? Um, I broke one on my car. Um, a rear just split around, and the outer rim just it, well, it lost air. <laughs> wow! And it was cracked probably halfway or two thirds away around where the outer rim was just coming off. But it's kind of interesting how the BRMs came to be um this name i mentioned before don crane mm-hmm. he had a red 67 with porsche wheels and hubcaps um he he saw a lady because the brms used to come on a gtv i think they came on a 67 gtv mm-hmm. with, which was an empty prepared car that they sold out of econo motors mm-hmm. I, I would imagine you could probably buy them, but I think they mostly were delivered on cars. Right. With all the, with all the accessory stuff that MP used to make. So Don Crane saw a lady, an older lady with this car with BRMs on it. And they were just gross looking all because they were magnesium. The polished parts would just grow with hair and, you know, <laughs> and they would turn really dark gray. Yeah. So Don Crane approached this lady, showed her his, his chrome wheels, Porsche wheels and stuff. She, she dug it. She traded straight across, paid for the swap. <laughs> so that's where the first set of BRM showed up. 
Oh, yeah, really? No. So, so it's kind yeah. of it's kind of something like they weren't really for sale. Like they were part of a well, kit they, you bought. They, they may Newton. have been, oh. um, but um, I don't recall anybody buying them new. I think they, you know, because by the time we were using them, mm-hmm. um, let's see, I would have had them on. I would have had them on in '69. So again, things happen quickly when you're that age. Yeah. You know, I mean like all the three paint jobs in my white car and it got, and it got popular or whatever in like three years Yeah, you know, or, or, or four maybe. But, um, anyway, the, the BRM thing just became, you know, everybody was looking for them and, they so weren't really it, that it, expensive at that time. It, it kind of became the look. And so whatever hustle you came up with to trade somebody or to, you know, see somebody with a set and pick them up because the, the conversation that was had recently uh, with some friends of mine, it was, you know, we talked about some things and they said, they're, they're saying the BRM came out in about 19, six, late 1966, meaning that they were, they're estimating there may only be about 250 wheels made because by the time they really, started getting a, getting a little bit of popularity. They started putting them on the 67s. Vita became out with the 68, which was now four lug. And so exactly. Now- I, I think that's exactly right. So all of a sudden the car that the wheel that they were using on their GTVs were probably like their eight spokes or something. Right. Eight I spokes know. or sprint stars or, you know, something, yeah. something to that effect. So it, it's interesting how indirectly something that's like, Oh, this is a cool idea. And I guess those were, you know, it was just another option for the dealership to make something look a little bit unique or something different, you know, and and it's funny because, you know, we look at it with this revered nostalgia today, but it's no different than going to, you know, here they got a guy called chopper and he makes this chopper edition, you know, Dodge chargers and they have these gaudy wheels and this, this, and this. And it's like, you know, at the time, you know, I, and that's the, the question I have, like, how was it perceived back then by the enthusiast was like, ah, oh, that's kind of cheesy dealership stuff. And we do our own thing. Or was it respected as, you know, something kind of cool and you were lucky if you could afford a GTV? Yeah. I, to be honest with you, I don't think I ever knew anybody that had a GTV. They were just dealer sold cars and it was kind of buy yourself a ticket to Coolsville. Like, Oh, I just go buy. I, 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 yeah, I guess so. Um, in our, in our club, in our circle, Mm-hmm. That they weren't around, you know, you didn't really pay attention to them as right. being cool. <laughs> and so, so now, now when you sell the car and buy the nine twelve, you're still hanging out with the guys in the club. Cause now at this point, the club is like mostly friends. Is that kind of originally how it evolves? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, we still hung around, um, in, in the early days of the club for me anyway. So, so let's say 67 and eight and nine, maybe 70 is when I um, did the 912 thing or 71. It's really hard to say exactly when that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a club meeting every Sunday night. We had a club event every Saturday night. And Friday night, we all hung out at this place called Select Auto Sales, which we park in this area where they used to cruise Taco Villa and the original Carlos junior yeah it was a little cruise loop so we were there almost every friday night and then um i was doing engines in my garage and usually guys in the club would drop by you know yeah so it was um 
I really didn't have any other friends. All, all my, my friends were all club guys. So, um, so it ended up being like, like, Hey, we're all enthusiasts in this. And now, Hey, we're going to go hang out over at Greg's place while he's built. He's finishing up my motor. Hey, these guys come with me. And then it kind of becomes a little bit of a hangout. And then, Oh, what are we doing? It's Friday night. Bit. Let's go cruise. A little bit until my dad would chase him away. Cause they would, <laughs> you know, make noise going up and down the street. And, um, but also, um, Jim Holmes, who had my car was mm-hmm. my roommate. So he was in the club and we still had the same friends. Just, I didn't, I didn't necessarily go to the club meetings and all this stuff. You know, I, in those days, if you were in the club, you had to go. And if you didn't go, why didn't you go? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and like when you saw the car, you're kind of like, eh, I, I'm kind of, I like hanging out with you guys, but now they don't have a car. I can kind of hang out selectively when I want. And no one's going to give me a hard time if I didn't show up this Friday or that Friday. It, it, yeah. I mean, you, you don't think about it that much, but you know, I was, Yes, that was exactly how it was. Yeah, and so now you get the nine. So you do you you sell the white car. You have Tar Babe while you have the nine twelve. Oh, let me think about this. Um, I had the nine twelve for a little while. And do you start going down the performance? And I start building the Tar Babe. But do you start and, do you start messing with per, per Porsche performance stuff, or do you stick to Volkswagen? Well, we we were we were doing Porsche stuff in the. Um, Somewhere in the few years of my, before the, my Volkswagen was white, I actually put a 912 engine in it for a little while. <laughs> so and people always, um, people always talk about that. And, and was the reason it didn't become common is they were too expensive or you could make a VW faster or what was. You could definitely make a VW faster. As a matter of fact, we kind of learned, you know, when I had the Porsche motor in, we we're out and, you know, kind of with the club, um, somewhere and there is this car that needed to be raced and it was decided that my car <laughs> probably was the fastest because it had the 912 i like the way you say that there's a car that needed to be raced like everybody's going who's gonna take him out who's taking him out and they're like greg you got well, the porsche motor work, you know <laughs> greg you got um, the porsche motor go get him <laughs> Hey, let me tell you, I am, I am, I was six, five, 165 pounds in those days. Right. I about got my butt kicked more than once because, um, you know, I raced this guy with a 446 pack and I beat him. I almost got my ass kicked by that guy. <laughs> and, and I also raced this guy with a, here we're at a dance place and we're talking this guy with a Corvette. So we drive out to, you know, where we do this back in those days, you kind of, drive away from town a little bit mm-hmm. and um and uh, again i thought i was gonna get my ass kicked by that guy um so so these guys would get guys, steaming those mad guys didn't like getting beat by volkswagens and, and so you're you're at this one race and they're deciding they're deciding greg's got to race this dude with the porsche engine what kind of car is it that you're racing at this time you know to be honest with you i don't remember that i just remember that it wasn't uh it didn't work out very well. So it, it was a big disappointment. The Porsche motors like, ah, wah, it was, wah, it wah. was. And that's when, <laughs> uh, again, that was before it was white. And I kind of started doing the, uh, VW with the 48s. 
So, so starting with the 1700 went kind of when the white car went together. So the funny thing is like, here's, here's the VW and the, the Porsche version of the VW is much more refined, much more engineered, much more this and a lot slower because as crude as the VW basic is, you can just get right to the brass tacks, punch this out, do that. And it's a little more lightweight, more things are easily accessible and you can, and because everybody knows how to spin them up faster, it's probably you know, the way to go in regards to, to doing that. So, yeah, I think that's so yeah, my, my first VW version, um, the one that ran 1410, mm-hmm. so 1700, 110 cam, 69 millimeter roller crank. Why I did that? I don't know, but that thing used to turn 8,000 RPM no problem on the street. <laughs> now, you know, so my generation, I don't know anything about the, I have a SBG roller bearing crank. What was, when those hit the market, how were those received? And was this like, man, this thing will rev to 10,000 because the rods can't come off. Like what was, what? how did that build up? And then what was the demise of it? Um, we I'm, mostly used them, um, we mostly used them in the shop cause they were available for mm-hmm. reasonable, you know, like uh, around a couple hundred bucks from what I recall. Um, so we used to build in the shop when we kind of, again, this was a few years later, this was towards the eighties, you know, mm-hmm. but we used to build, you know, a, a motor that you take the go-to motor was a 2180 with a Zenith and a roller crank. Really? And then yep. the, the, I, I understood that the failures of the roller cranks were like really hard launches. You would twist, twist the crankshafts. Yeah. Well, we used to, um, some people used to pin them. We used to TIG weld the, the um, where they're pressed together. So we never had that problem. And, um, and they just stopped. The biggest, you- problem, the biggest problem with them on the street was um, they didn't like to be lugged. So, you know, lots of time you on the street, you're lugging the motor around and that kind of kills the needle bearings and the rods that we learned. Oh, gotcha. And did never you never really had a problem in off-road race engines because they, you know, they didn't get that many miles and then they usually didn't lug them. Well, that's interesting when you say that off-road because <clears throat> so there's a point when you start to, so you're building engines and, and one of the things I, I wanted to ask is, at what at what point do you guys start and give the company a name? And was it always fat, or was there a different name in the beginning? And no, no. When we started, we called it Fleming and Aronson High Performance. Mm-hmm. And okay, um, we were okay. That was in '71 when we started. Uh, Fellow named Mark Thurber was in our club. He was going to Cal State Fullerton as a business guy. So when he graduated, we let him buy in. So it was actually Fleming Aronson Thurber performance. Mm -hmm. And we thought that sounded like a law firm. So, (laughs) and it was just a mouthful, you know, to answer the phone, for instance. So we kind of changed it to F-A-T, F period, A period, T period. That was the initial, you know, looking. Enunciation of the logo or whatever. Right. And then we um, got our logo done, you know, the the last one, fat and whatever you want to call it, script or whatever that is. Mm -hmm. 
fat script. <laughs> um, and then we kind of bought Thurber back out. That wasn't working out. And what was and Thurberg's we, role? Was it kind of like, well, he's got the business sense. Let's have him kind of yeah, do. Yeah, that, that was the original plan. Mm-hmm. You know, the office guy. Sure, sure. Well, you got to have, I mean, listen, there's it didn't a, work. I'm not going to go any further than that. It just didn't work. Yeah. 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 That's no problem. Yeah. It's like I said, there's, there's always that where like, you know, you have the idea of someone's in the office, someone's, someone's doing the, the hands-on stuff, but yeah. And that's the history. I mean, it's, it's even tough. I've owned a couple of businesses and every time I've had partners, it's always been sometimes tough because, you know, just different people have different ideas. But, uh, so you guys decide to stick with the fat name because now you're already established and we were, and we were also, we were also still kids, you know? So it's like, okay, there's not enough money here to be made for three people. So right. let's move on. And now at what point do you guys, because off-road racing, what, what a lot of people don't realize is everybody's so focused on the cow look thing and they're kind of like stuck in that gear. But as I've been doing the podcast, I just keep seeing layers and layers and how this hobby just starts to divide and, and not really divide, but just spread out. Right. And, and in the early seventies, they start off road racing. And when do you guys first start looking? Cause you guys, you guys are unbelievably well-known in the off-road circle. I mean, like it, it, it's a lot of VW people that only know the street scene of things. They don't even understand the magnitude of the name that fat performance has in off-road racing. How does that, when, when do you guys first start dabbling in off-road stuff? Um, we actually, Okay, so like I said, we started in 71. Mm-hmm. We were pretty much on our way to being established in 78 on the off-road scene. Okay, but we say in that seven years in between, we had three or four customers. And, and it was, so we were learning. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them, for instance, was a guy named Don McBride. He had a really, he was a realtor. He owned half a Brea, we used to say. Yeah. Um, he had a tandem so it was a two-seater front to rear right it was actually built by the beetle barn That's, that is so funny you say that Vegas. yeah okay i think yeah. we talked about this before right right so and we actually went there met once we went to the mint or something like that and with i mean we basically never went to races but what was funny was we built a two-liter because again, back in that era, we were 88 guys, not 90. We didn't use 92s. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of rubbed off from Gene Berg. And um, so we built them a two liter with dual zeniths. That thing made too much power for the day. Really? Because the car was a swing axle. Yeah. I, di- I did the tranny. Now, nowadays in class nine, they have to do the transmission almost every race, and that's with a stock 1600. So back in those days with a two-liter in Zenith, I did the gearbox. They'd go out and they'd race a race. They'd you know talk to me and go, oh, yeah, it should be good to go another race. Though I wouldn't see it. They'd go out and blow it up the next time. And we'd, after we did that a few times, we kind of realizing, huh, I guess they need to be done every race. Yeah, and what kind of what, – what, what, is it just the constant free spinning of the wheel and then grabbing traction? Is that what tears those transaxles apart uh, or just yeah, the raw yeah. power? And it was the power. And I mean, we had stock gears except for close ratio third and fourth. I mean, we had a super diff. We had crown used to make axles crown and current manufacturing made axles. So we had all that stuff in there, but it's still, you know, the ring and pinions wouldn't live. And I mean, just did, 
I mean, now with bus boxes, they re- they rebuild them all the time. You know, yeah, yeah. Like every and, race. And and with so Don McBride is like the guy where he's he wants to off road race, and so because I remember Justin telling me the story of his dad building the tandem car and says you got to have a two seat car, but his dad thought if he could make the car a little narrower. Yeah it'd work a little bit. You could go a little faster, you know, cause that was the thing, right? I mean, the, the, the biggest, the, the biggest difference in all off-road racing that's happened has been due to suspension because better suspension lets you go faster. And right. You know, he, he, I remember he said when his dad first debuted that car, he looked at the rule book and made sure that he built it where it fit within the rule book. Cause he didn't see stuff and they tried to fight it the first time they saw something. And then they just had to let him race it because he he said there's nothing in the rule book says the seats have to be left to right you know what i mean and so i, right, I think right. it's always that unique aspect of doing that and so th- this mcbride he buys this car because it's a unique car at the time and he wants like every racer probably wants the edge of something you know yeah so we did his and this other uh guy named bob rents he uh, his, his company was safeway plumbing so he we did his engine also his gearbox, his was a um, IRS type one gearbox. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it was, again, you, now you're really learning about CVs and all that stuff. Um, I, I, I can't even tell you when the, the bus transmission started being used. Um, you know, none and, of that stuff had been figured out, right? And, and so. most of this time, because like they're making new classes as guys like reach a, a certain level of, of performance, then it's like, well, can we use a Type 4 engine or can we do this? Well, we'll make well, a that, new class. That's much it. later. Actually, in the in the 70s, like I, there, uh, there was a limited class <clears throat> customer, I, don't, I can't tell you what class it was, maybe mm-hmm. um, class nine in those days was a 1200 with a one barrel. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I, it might've been that cause we were, we were pretty strong in that class in the early days. But when we had those first three customers, we never went to a race. We didn't know what it was all about. You know, we did, we went that one time to the mint, just kind of watched them going around going, wow, this is different. And we went one time we went to Ensenada for a Baja race again, you know, just figuring out where you're going out there and finding the stuff was yeah. It was like, wow, this is, this is different. And, and, but uh, but and, as time went by, okay, um, um, since I did gearboxes um, at the shop, um, there used to be these VW swap meets, okay? Mm-hmm. And there was always a guy there selling OEM parts like ring and pinions and slider gears and stuff and being the original boxes and stuff. And I just remember buying him from this guy and he always used to, you know, brag about him being an off-road guy and how good he was. And this guy's name was Marty Lettner. Marty um, Lettner. Have you heard that name? You know that name? I, I haven't. I haven't. Like I said, okay. I, you know, I'm yeah, trying okay. to. Yeah. So this is history. His dad used to race. So we, um, the way we got involved with him was Mickey Thompson's son, Danny Thompson, was Marty's buddy. And they came by the shop one time and they were, and he was kind of spewing how, how good he was and tell him, Danny, tell him how good I am. And so anyway, he talked us into helping him. Mm -hmm. So we did the labor for an engine. He went out and won the Parker 400. And anyway, so we got involved. We're hooked up with Marty Lettner. He's winning everything. We're heroes, but this guy's got a drug problem. (laughs) He's kind of a, 
um, not your best rep- representation of that performance. You right. know what I mean? Loose cannon. But he's he, out there like but, we're, we're getting but recognition. He, but, but he's out there winning races and we don't, we don't really care because we're on the map, right. you know? Right. And all of a sudden we're the guys we, you know, time goes by and not much time goes by, but we're doing Malcolm Smith's engine, yeah. you know? And then, all of a sudden we get a call as we're doing Malcolm Smith's engine and a bunch of other guys. We get a call from this guy in Arizona who uh, used to race motorcycles. So Larry Raglan, you know that name? Yeah, that name's familiar. Yeah. Okay. He, I mean, he was a trophy truck driver towards the end, but so he calls up and orders per Malcolm because he's buddies with Malcolm Smith. He calls up, he's building a new car in Arizona. He orders two engines and two transmissions like, Oh my God. We're going to be rich. We're really on the map now. <laughs> um, so as as the years go by, we end up just kind of getting anybody who's anybody in the sport traveled through our doors once, at least once. And, you know? it, and, and it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. I talk, Adam Wick's a friend of mine and I had him on the podcast and we, and we talked about, um, you know, what made you go from drag racing to off-road racing? He says he f- first off-road race he went to, he just saw all the cars out there. And he said, all these guys need engines. <laughs> and he's like, I can make a living building engines. Like, you know, and I, I think it's interesting because the dynamic between the two building like an off-road race engine and a street engine are two completely different worlds, right? I mean, there's, there's, when you're, you're building an off-road engine, you're, you're limited on specifications and it's got to be built to a certain degree, but it's got to be built to last wide open throttle from first fire up all the way to the end of, you know, the Baja 1000, which is how do you cut your teeth on something like that? Cause it's a pretty, I mean, you can get, you can make or break with a few races and like you guys had had luck there with that, with that, uh, Lentner, it's like, you know, a guy gets out there and, and, and you get a couple podiums and all of a sudden it's like, Hey, those guys are winning. We're having them build engines. And it's like, in in that world, can can your reputation get destroyed quickly? Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess it could. But um, the, the the good the important part was we were there always. Once we started to go to the races, mm-hmm. um, we were there always all, all the way to the end, or at least um, through the recession, through the beginning of the recession, when all of a sudden we couldn't survive on off-road alone. Uh, we kind of quit going to the races, right? You, know, you can't, you, you just can't go and have a hotel room for a few days and drive the state line or to Mexico. And, and you know, when you got two or three guys running, that didn't work. Yeah. Um, now but, you, um, you were telling me, at, what, what do you think was the, the height of the off-road era for you guys, as far as cars out there running your, running your motors and that type of stuff? Um, in the eighties, I mostly through the eighties, eighties and nineties. Um, but you know, some of it was a learning curve. Like we, you know, we told you, I told you that we were, uh, the original class nine was a 1200 CC one barrel mm-hmm. unlimited car, limited engine. So the same car that would you would have in a class 10 today, except nowadays they have A-arms. You know, in that era, there was no A-arms. But mm-hmm. So 
um, a class nine motor of the day was a 1200 and we built this little bomb of an engine basically. So to give you an idea, we had, um, some good customers. We always had good customers cause we had a good reputation. So the people that had money and that were good usually came to us, mm-hmm. you know, but, uh, for instance, at the mint one year, I'm going to say early, early eighties, I can't tell you when they changed to a 1600 in class nine. Um, but we happened to have the guys that you know, we got first and second customers at the mint mm-hmm. and both guys said, wow, this is cool. I think we're going to go to the 500 in Mexico, the next race. So we go down there. Both of them go about a hundred miles and throw rods. Oh. So we realized, okay, the 40 horse or the 1200, the 40 horse rods were, were weak. We had to change the rod bolts on them often. So, okay. They're one race motor. You know? Yeah. And then it gets, um, and then it gets expensive. And then, and then do, does the off-road guy normally say like, okay, I, you know, I can't do this in a 1600 anymore. Let's move up to a different class with a bigger motor, more durable, whatever. Cause you guys did, you guys were kind of on the forefront of the Toyota thing too, right? Yeah. How, how that worked out was, um, okay. So class 10, which back in the day was, was my favorite class. And I actually raced it. I started in 83 Okay, so class 10, the rules were the, were the same as that class 9. It's an unlimited car. Mm-hmm. But again, back in that era, no arms. So we were, and the rules for the engine in class 10 was 1650, one two barrel. That was it. So, the, so that was the outline of the rules. That was the outline of the class 10 rules. Mm-hmm. And we were really, I mean, we were big in, in those days on in, in, in unlimited classes too, but the limited classes were class 10. We were just huge in, and we were, we were fighting in the 1600 deal because back in those days, Don Hans out of San Diego, he was the guy for, for the 1600s. You mm-hmm. know, we had a few, but you know, he was the guy. So, you know, until you, until you get the herd to turn their nose and go somewhere else, you know, that's kind of the way it goes. You know, the 1600 guys, most of them went to hats where in class 10, we were, we were kind of the guys. So, um, in the eighties, um, the Mickey Thompson thing was happening late seventies and into the eighties and almost, almost all the way through the Mm eighties. Um, so basically their little class called super 1600 used the same rules as class 10. So for short course, we're also building 1650s, single carb. And so a lot of development was happening. We we're kind of dominating in that. And then when they really started racing in the stadium, like Anaheim and San Diego and all across the country and stuff, mm-hmm. we started to um, develop a rabbit motor. So we were building all of a sudden, okay, no more air cooled. You got to have a rabbit or you can't even compete. And place in Riverside was called, um, Rev Power. Yeah. Back in that era, they were kind of into rabbits. So we were learning rabbits. So they were our new competition in, in the Mickey Thompson thing. Yeah. Um, rabbits, rabbits, rabbits. And, um, <laughs> That's so, so I, so I started racing class 10 in the desert personally, air cooled in the beginning. And then when we were having such success with the rabbits in the short course, 
I built a rabbit motor for my desert car and we ended up winning the class 10, um, championship with score with a rabbit in 1987 personally. So what was cool was we were building class 10 engines for paying customers, air cools. When we went to a rabbit, Oh, we're doing good. Everybody needs rabbits. Okay. We sold a bunch of rabbits. Okay. Yeah. After we won the championship the following year, they're going to allow four valves per cylinder. Um, and we called Volkswagen up after we won the championship and kind of told them what was happening. And we've been Volkswagen guys for all these years and we were, can you support us and help us? And they pretty much a kid pound sand, you know? Um, <laughs> So I called Toyota and a week later we had a meeting at Toyota motor sales in Torrance with 10 people. Wow. You know, like half of them from TRD and half of them from TMS motor sales. And, um, they were all excited in the plan that we had, the engine that we wanted to use. They gave me a, a, a crusher car to take the engine out of. They gave us $10,000 in parts support. Wow. They gave us a thousand dollars a race to start with our Toyota, and then they had a pretty good payoff. Um, so we actually won sixteen thousand dollars from Toyota that first year, and oh, you know all those guys, customers with rabbits. Now they want Toyotas. Yeah. Okay, so so all of a sudden we're building Toyotas for the Mickey Thompson series. We're building them for the desert, um, and we actually. Um, I think in 1989, mm-hmm. we built a, uh, for a customer, Jim Greenway, we took a, the cast iron three liter V6 out of a Toyota, um, Tacoma first Tacoma, I think it was. And we did it, did an engine, an unlimited engine with three Weber's on this Toyota V6 three liter. Yeah. And, and. The guy won this, uh, the, uh, I don't remember what the award is. He finished every mile of every race the first year, first season on that engine and car. Wow. So well, we kind of started building those. A few years later, we built the all aluminum Camry uh, three liter V6. Um, built one of those for Bob Gordon, a, a bunch of them. Mike Julson from Jimco. I mean, it's like, all of a sudden, when we were doing the Toyota thing, if you went to Jimco to buy a new car in yeah. the 90s, it's like, okay, you got to have the package here. Right. In other words, you got to go to Fat, you got to go to Fortin, you got to get this car. And that's, we, we were building carbon copy cars. And now, pretty much. And, 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 and so the question that I have with respect to that is d- does what you guys, what what you guys are end up doing in off-road racing, does Toyota get involved in like, hey, we want data, we want to utilize this test bed to further develop things? And does it, because I don't recall Toyota having a big TRD race program back then, like they do today, like everything is TRD and it's Toyota racing development and all this kind of stuff. Was that, was Toyota really, I mean, obviously it sounded hugely supportive, but were, would you guys get help from engineers and things like that if you were having troubles? Um. We didn't really need to go there because we figured it out ourselves. Right. Um, um, but we did get support because TRD, Toyota and TRD's factory support was for Ivan Stewart. Right. Okay. Yeah. But, but they did pay contingency. And 
since we were kind of on the ground floor of putting Toyota engines, you know, they, they liked the way that we took a production engine and made pieces, rods, pistons, cams, manifolds and stuff and took their production engine and put them in a race car and made them go win. Yeah. They love that. So for instance, when Johnny Greaves, you know, the name Johnny Greaves, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. In the Midwest, um, back in the day he was racing their, uh, pro lighter, which is kind of like a class seven thing. But, mm-hmm. So in the beginning, when we first got hooked up with Johnny Greaves, I mean, it was a 22 R, which was the, the engine that had been in the Toyota pickups forever. Yeah. And, um, and then the Tacoma came out. So, um, the way it worked is, you know, he was sponsored by Toyota, but Toyota go, okay, here's your budget. That's doing your engines. Oh yeah. Can't beat that. So it was pretty cool that we were their guys. We, we were, we were their off road, what they called grassroots engine builders. And, and it even got to the point where as their rep representatives that used to go to the desert, mm-hmm. you know, they would change that guy every few years and they changed one year and all of a sudden the guy that was the guy that used would be going to the races. Well, he wasn't in the off road. He was in the road racing. So he went to, he went road racing and, and we kind of became the unofficial Toyota reps in the desert, you know? So we'd make sure we'd go with stickers and, you know, make sure that everybody was, you know, representing Toyota properly. And, and for that, we got a pretty nice, um, free parts budget from Toyota. You know, and a lot of this, I mean, with engine building as a whole, a lot of the technology from starting with these little tiny air-cooled motors that you're just stretching them to the max, a lot of that with the heavy-duty rods, the, you know, the, you know, the making sure that your main bearings are like the, the, the cradle those sit in, like a lot of that stuff is is transferable from engine platform to engine platform. And so a lot of the history of the things that you learn with like these little weak air-cooled motors, you take that technology and you get a new Toyota and you're like, well, right out of the gate, we got to do this, 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 and this. And although nobody makes it for a Toyota at this time, we have the resources to get those things made. Is that how you guys are exactly right? We would go, we would go to JE and have pistons made. We would, you know, take the stock rod and I mean, for a while we actually modified the stock rod until we realized that, that it wouldn't live. And, um, um, but we had, we had a you know, multiple places that, um, we could say here, here's a stock rod. We want you to make this out of a chromoly H, make it a chromoly H beam rod or whatever, you know? And they're like, what are you doing this for? And next thing you know, the next time they see you go, we need four dozen of them. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, it worked. I mean, it, it worked on all the different versions that we built of the Toyotas. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you would tell me earlier, there's one year when you guys had quite a few cars that were, you're in one race and you look out in the field and you've got quite a few cars out in the field or running fat performance engines in, in multiple different classes across different engine platforms. 
Yeah. Um, in the, in the eighties, um, well, in the early eighties, for instance, in a class one car, we were still building type one engines. Right. And in, the, in those days, all they had, all you had was a stock magnesium case. You didn't have the aftermarket aluminum stuff that you have today or that you had 10 years ago, even. Right. So we we're building, uh, we we're building 88 by 94 motors, which is a 2440. In a and stock we, case? With a stock case. And mm. we were doing them single carb. So we made our own manifold and, you know, we did the heads and, but you go out and run a, a Baja 500 with that engine combination and then you take it apart afterwards, the case is riddled with cracks. You have to change the case. Yeah. So that, and that's when that cases... wasn't a pretty story. So <laughs> we, we decided to try the type four, um, thing. And, um, I mean, we really hated that engine in the beginning. Well, um, so, so, so this is the evolution of how type four starts to become popular because you're looking for displacement. Is that the original thing? Right. Right. Um, when the 411 wagons first came out in 70 and 71, so they came out when we were just starting in business. So uh -huh. they were 1700s. They were kind of slugs. Um, we called 411 wagons tuna boats. So <laughs> we called the motors tuna boat motors. Um, we had a guy that was working for us who we actually had a 914. And, um, and it was a big joke that, you know, we're building a, we're building a big motor, you know, type tuna, we called it. <laughs> and um, so when it came to the, class one unlimited, you know, 2440 type ones that were, you know, turning to powder after every race, we decided to do a type four. And, um, um, we, we knew the two liter nine fourteen heads were the, the stuff. And we knew because we used to use Ocrasses back in the day, um, Ocrasa made a 80 millimeter stroke, um, type four crank. Mm -hmm. So with one Oh threes and that 80, it was a, that's a 2666. So we built, um, 2666. We built a single car manifold and because the, uh, the type four is a crank mounted fan and a big magnesium fan housing on the, you know, on the front of the motor. I mean, it's just a real ugly looking piece, right? Pancake engine as they call it. So, there was a company in Germany that made a fiberglass shroud kit for that to use a 911 fan. And we bought one of those. And sorry, we copied it. Yeah. Um, and that was, God, we sold hundreds of those kits. And they were a very cool looking engine. Um, we needed an exhaust and I used to build exhaust systems. You know, I used to do custom exhaust and stuff for projects at the shop. And, um, so I prototyped an exhaust for upright type four. Um, we used to buy trimill exhaust. So the GM from trimill came to the shop, looked at my prototype and recommended a couple changes so we could, you know, so they'd be easy to bend and all that stuff. So all of a sudden, Prime was making our exhaust. We were making the intake. We had the the um, the shroud kit. I used to go to the Pomona swap meets and 
with a wagon and buy 911 fan assemblies like <laughs> for cheap like crazy <laughs> for cheap yeah 150 <laughs> bucks now you got to pay probably 12 to 1500 bucks for the same thing if you can find it it's crazy i mean you think about how many of those how many of those magnesium fan rings are out there on off-road cars and what they right. sell for today i mean yeah i actually one I, I had a street rod at the time i was trying to sell so it was easy to go there and walk around i i bought nine complete units one sunday <laughs> at pomona it was like a gold mine yeah um, that's crazy so, so anyway the so obviously the type four and when we developed that in the um middle 80s it was such a big deal it's kind of like you had to have it. So were you so, the were, were you guys the first ones out with a type four in the in the off road field? We weren't the first one, um, but the first ones that really made it happen. Um, there was a guy named Mart, Martin Tajra that ran Riverside, um, and he was kind of involved with that Rev Power company I was talking about with the rabbits uh-huh. and. He ran one, and it was really fast at Riverside, but it was still the ugly-looking pancake thing. Right, right. We're, we're the ones that made it um, upright, which changing it to an upright and eliminating the fan and the housing on the back of the motor or, or the, on the fan on the pulley end of the motor, mm-hmm. um, by eliminating that, we just gained tons of ground clearance. Yeah. So, so it was... It was the situation where we'd have plenty of guys running in the, you know, class one and they had class two back in those days also. So single seaters and two seaters and, um, yep. and the first big the biggest, type four. Our biggest, uh, our biggest event was in 86 when we had, we had 43 engines running at the Parker 400 and 23 of those were type fours. Wow. So needless to say, I mean, as far as when it comes to building type fours, you guys have probably built, I would say a large, you know, hundreds of type fours that were straight race engines that were just all out. Now, what, when you started dabbling in the type four, so I'm a big type four guy. You guys actually built the type four that's in my split window um, years ago. It was the Navy seal motor, the one that was built for the U S Navy. Right. One of those resurfaced here out of the air force base. And I ended up with it. And that was the first time you and I spoke on the phone. And I don't know if you make that connection or remember that, but the the heads were stamped USN. And so that motor was rebuilt by you guys, I think in 2017 and it's in Arizona sitting in my split window with 48s on it, waiting for one day to be back here in Las Vegas, hopefully. But you know, I've been, my first road down the type four is I, I was sitting with a guy getting ready to build my bus that I bought and, and I'm talking to this guy and I said, yeah, I'm trying to figure out what motor to do probably 2332 or whatever. And this guy says, well, why don't you just do a type four? And I'm like, well, what, what's the deal with the type four? He goes, well, you can build a 2.2 liter with 90% German parts. And you know, it, it's, it's, it's like a, like a 20, 2270 is like a 1641, you know, you get some good heads and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, ah, so the first motor I buy is a, a Raby 2270 from my bull run bus. And all my friends are like, you're crazy. 8,000 bucks. That's ridiculous. It was for a turnkey engine and it was on and dorp exhaust out of Germany, a sharp built fan out of Australia, 
But that motor mm-hmm. still to this day is in my bus and it still runs and I've never had the heads off and it's got thousands of miles and dozens of long road trips on it and stuff like that. But it's like, I look at Europe and they use the type four so much more on the street than we do here. And I just like, personally, I love the torque in a type four for like daily driving, you know, and and I'm surprised it never really took off here in the States, you know, as far as performance, but you know, what kind of, I'd say, I'd say a lot of the reason was since we were the ones that were doing it, Mm -hmm. We were so deep into the off-road deal, we didn't have time, yeah. you know, to, to do all the, you know, the surround tin and, you know, all the little stuff that you, to, to make it right. Right. You know? Well, um, and, 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 and so I, my question is, as you start going to the Type 4 right out of the gate, you know, you, you're, you've got to go first to Europe to find a fan shroud kit to, to make this thing go upright. And then... What? Yeah, you mentioned Annendorp. That's the one we stole it from. Yeah, and so <laughs> and what and and what um, what challenges do you start having with the Type Fours? Like the first thing that the first idea, right, is there's no replacement for displacement, so we can get this huge two point six liter, or technically two point seven, right? And what what are some of the challenges you start to have to overcome when you start building the type fours? Cause obviously that's a natural progression, right? We're, we're going with this and then we start having problems a, B and C like what, what are the main things you remember having challenges with? with trans- the, the, the biggest problem with type four when you're building a two, six or two, eight or whatever is when you get up to the one Oh three or one Oh four millimeter bore size, the heads leak. That's all yeah. there is to it. The heads leak. So we learned early on, um, cause we were using the two liter and we liked the plug angle of the two liter nine fourteen head. Um, when we built the original first race motor, we take it apart and the top little, you know, the top little area above the spark plug was always leaking there. Mm-hmm. You could see the gray or the, what we call black death, you know, the, the carbon going by the end of the cylinder. So we actually took the um, two liter head because I, I was a TIG welder. Um, I made these little gussets, um, like six little gussets on each head and, it, you know, the little ribs that go to the fins and mm-hmm. stuff. I actually, I actually tied the fins together. I put these gussets in to support the, you know, all the, the above the spark plug where it's doesn't have a lot of support or aluminum behind it. Right. I kind of, I kind of gusseted it and, and, um, anyway, went and had it race. I mean, it wouldn't fail, but we take it apart and it was still leaking. So that's when we came up with a fifth headstead modification, um, where we would weld a right above the spark plug hole on a two liter. We weld a little area of fins together. We'd weld a little aluminum block on top of the case and we used a um, long eight millimeter bolt and drilled holes for the cylinders. So you go and put the head cylinders and the heads on, and you go and torque the normal eight um, head nuts, and then you come back and do a light torque on these two top ones. Yeah, over your spark plug hole, and it pr- pretty much solved the problem. Um, we never had any failures on that stuff, but we would never sell an engine to a streetcar customer without telling them, you know what, in 10,000 miles, you're probably going to need the heads come off and get this 
you know, I don't remember the mileage, but it, you know, the head's going to have to come off and get serviced and go back on. It's not the kind of, it's not the kind of a motor you want for a daily driver. Right. Well, so you, yeah, when you do the 2.6, change, yeah. though, mm-hmm. um, through the evolution, evolution of the, uh, the recession, um, where we had, we were going, we we're 80% off road. And this is 07, um, like 07, 08. Yeah. Oh, seven, let's say oh seven, eight, nine, right mm-hmm. in there. I mean, it took a, a little bit of time for, um, people to react, I guess you could say, but, um, most of our customers by that time, um, we were not doing unlimited engines anymore because it had progressed from our type fours to nine elevens, which we did to the Toyota V six, the Camry motor that we did. And by the, by the recession, by the middle of the, uh, you know, after we got into the two thousands guys, the cars were working better. The suspension was working better and guys were starting to put LS motors in mm-hmm. and we did a couple wasn't our cup of tea It kind of upset the whole flow of the shop. So we just decided we're not going to do V8. That's not our deal. We're little engine guys. So we're going to keep doing what we're doing. So we, so we were really involved with, um, you know, class 10. And all of a sudden we were the 1600 guys at that point. Um, so I'm going to say a majority of our customers were, blue collar kind of guys, even though they may not be out in the field, a blue collar guy, they may be owning a blue collar company, you know, owning a plumbing company or electrical contractor or whatever. And when things get bad at work and you're laying off guys, you're not going racing. You're not parading your race car through the shop when you just laid guys off. Okay. So, so things really slowed down after the recession and, um, then all of a sudden at the same exact time, buses, 914s and all Porsches were worth mega dollars. Yeah. So all of a sudden, well, we're one of our off-road guys didn't come back. Um, I mean, we still had a good clientele, but not like it was. Um, so, so the, the biggest seller, toward, you know, just before retirement was where we were building Type 4 2375s, which was a great combination, which was an 82 by 90, uh, by 96. Mm-hmm. Um, so you didn't have the big bore leaky head problem, but we still have almost a 2.4. We were selling tons of those to 356 guys, 914 guys, 912 guys, bus people. I mean, it, it was you know, and all of a sudden that's a $15,000 engine or $14,000 engine. And we were, you know, it, it was figured out. So that was our new deal. Yeah. Did you, have you ever built or have you ever seen those polo motors? They're the, Um, the, the four cylinder nine eleven style overhead cam engine. Yeah. I was aware of those. Um, 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 What's his name? Emery. Yeah, Rod Emery. Rod Emery. Um, we did a number of engines for his 
high profile 356 outlaw cars that he built. Mm-hmm. And, um, we probably did a half a dozen type fours for him because it was kind of the package, but he ended up buying that polo motor package. So that's yeah. what goes in his car now. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was just curious, you know, cause that was when I was, you know, as I was building my cars and my last type 34 gear, you know, I had a pancake 2600 in it and I thought, yeah, the next thing I'm going to do is that polo motor. And then I got the cost of it and it's like 30 grand for motor. I'm like, yeah, not, yeah, not, yeah. Not, I'm not, not that serious. <laughs> and, and, and now they're more than like 40 to 50 and you can't buy one unless yeah. you buy his car. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 it's, it's, it's insane. And, and you look at this, this, this little engine that started out as like a weekend racer and all this stuff. And, and the evolution of all of this that's happened throughout your life. Now, when you were racing off-road personally, because you and I connected through Craig, right? And I know that you and, and Craig raced together. Um, what did you, you know, what was it about off-road racing that that would help you understand? Because it seems to me that, you know, you're a TIG welder, you're you're making exhausts, you're modifying this, you're machining stuff. You're, it's like, my question is like, what don't you do? you know, and is it just, you just have an inclination to, to just get into things, um, you know, and, and, and learn and, and do, cause there's not, there's not a lot of guys that are so cross platformed. Was it out of necessity or do you just enjoy learning new things? Um, I, yeah, I guess I, you know, <laughs> um, um, yeah, I, I, I it, it, I just did things, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't I, know. I, I do the same thing around the house. If I can do it, I do it. You know, I, I installed doors and, and whatever, you know, whatever has to be done. Yeah. Uh, let's say I used to, I'm now 70, almost 72. So there's not a whole lot I want to do. Well, 70 is the new 60. So, I mean, <laughs> well, I built so many cars. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty much over it today because yeah. I've done it, you know, and I just don't have any drive to, Oh, I got to have this, you know? Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and it's, it's one of those things because you've had a, a, a list of Porsches that you've had, right? You had the nine twelve, and then you've had, yeah, some... I think I, I had a, yeah, I had, I did the nine twelve. We, we can bounce off of that real quick. Yeah. I did the nine twelve, which was just basically a sixty seven nine twelve that I just redid at Becker's painted. I had the interior done. It was just a perfect car. Um and then um in the beginning of Fat Before when we were at Fleming and Aronson, the guy that used to do our interiors, Brad. Right. Brad's interiors back in, I mean it's if you look at the Calic book, his oh, yeah. name he, comes up. He's a the lot. guy, right? He was the guy. So I just kind of put out the word, you know, that I, I, I had a, something I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to do an A model Porsche convertible with a Volkswagen engine in it. Yeah. Right. So I just mentioned it and I think it was about a week into my mentioning it. He called up and goes, Hey, there's a 59 Cabriolet over here. Original paint. You got to realize this is in 70. <laughs> right. Two, maybe. Yeah. So, a 59 Cabriolet is only 13 years old in 1972. So it's a used car. 50, 
1500 bucks. And um, again, I had a vision. I built a two liter with 48 IDAs. And Brad did the interior, Becker did the paint. It, um, I put a little chrome roll bar in it and I modified the Porsche drums to take alloys. <laughs> of all things. Really? So I kind of started that trend, ended up uh, selling the car to a friend, $6,000, okay? You're um, right, big score. You may, you've you made substantial money on that $1,500 purchase, right? Probably. But, yeah, um, yeah. Well, I mean, I had, that's the way we look at it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, things didn't cost that much back then, plus I did everything myself except for paint and interior. But he ended, he kept it for a little while, and he ended up selling it to Vasek Polak. You know that name? Yeah, yeah. It's a really, really famous dealership. that had, They had a race team and all kind of stuff, right? Yeah, you're right. So he... This was a, for Vasek's um, personal collection my, my Cabriolet went to. Oh, wow. Did they change and, everything you did to it and put it back to all original? Well, they, I heard they took the wheels off and changed all that stuff. I'm sure they didn't like those Cla- things. Classless. But, um, <laughs> um, and I, I painted that car also white, but it was kind of like a cream, creamy white color. Yeah. And my wife hated me for getting rid of that car because at the same time, I had bought one of my off-road customers, which um, I forgot about these guys. They were the guys that owned La Paz Margarita Mix. Uh-huh. They called me over to their shop over in Fullerton one day. They had a 66 911 engine and transmission sitting on a pallet, and I bought it from them for 500 bucks. <laughs> so then I went over to, um, there was a wrecking Porsche wrecker in um, Anaheim called Aussie Brothers. Yeah. Dennis Aussie was a pretty big time uh, road race guy. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I made a deal with them. I bought a 71 Targa theft recovery. So I built this car <laughs> out of the engine transmission in this theft recovery car. Oh, wow. And, and I ended up totally Euro look, but it was before that term ever was stated. Right. In other words, because I was building this from a theft recovery, you know how Porsches have got the little deco trim below the, you know, on the rock panels and the little deco trim on the bump bumpers and yeah, you know what I mean by that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I eliminated all the decos and I painted the target bar the same color as the car. So I kind of went with the same, you know, thing I did with my, with my white car, the, the VW, kind of a high contrast you know, basically white and black and the tires and the, you know, the alloys and similar um, to the 63, totally, <laughs> totally Euro look that they came out with a few years later and they called it that. You know? Yeah. And here, you know, this was my first um, time around with a 911 engine and all that stuff. So here I had, and this was also painted the same cream colored white. So here I have my Targa and my 59 Cabriolet sitting in the car in the garage at the same time. Yeah. I teach my wife how to drive in the, in the 59 Cabriolet, how to drive a stick, excuse me. Yeah. Um, and, and then I needed to sell a car, you know, so Cabriolet went, I kept the 911. My wife hated it. Um, but I did that, but you know, got to sell the car to do the next project. <laughs> that's kind of the, that's kind of the worker's way, right? You you build a car and then you sell it to buy the next one, and then you sell it to buy the next one, and and it's all right. it's all. And the crazy part is it, is it's all to. Because I try to figure out what makes us car guys, right? And 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 I think at some point when you're young and impressionable, you see somebody in a car, and that car has a cool look, and you think, man, the guy driving that car must be must have a pretty good life. 
and and you know because look how cool he looks and it's the it's this this the pursuit of cool i think it is i don't know i mean that's that's how i kind of interpret it because you know it's it, i think it's a it's a great hobby because the the vw platform is so it's so uh diverse with so many different people and backgrounds mm-hmm. and it, it creates a sense of community and sometimes you know we can get we can get a little detached from that and it becomes kind of a grind and a business and that type of thing. But I think that the the genuine aspect that I found, because I've been in all different kinds of car clubs and different people, but the, the people in the VW culture are pretty genuine people because they're all starting from nothing. I think they all start from the, the basics of like, eh, we just got this little Baja bug and I took it for a ride in the desert. And now I want to go an off-road car and you know, it all kind of starts somewhere. But I tell you, I, I'm super thankful for for all the things that you've contributed to the hobby because there's so many things that in every aspect of something that you've done that's kind of inched something forward along the way. And and all the while, it's just your day-to-day job. And it's just the natural, you know, we broke this, now we're going to do this. We're leaking from the heads, now we're going to fifth stud the heads. And, you know, all these yep, things. Yep. And we kind of we had to do that on everything, too. I mean, you kind of learn as you go. Yeah. And, um, and it's interesting. And, and I completely understand, like, kind of where you're at. We're like, yeah, I've had my cars. I've had my fun. And now I'm kind of – it takes something of a forward-thinking person to be able to say, all right, I had my fun. I'm doing something different now. I'm moving because right. so many of us get caught in this nostalgia of things, but listen, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate that disposition because it's, it's a, it's a fresh perspective all the time. Unfortunately, we were on the podcast so long that, uh, Greg's battery died and we tried to connect to get, uh, an ending wrapped up for it, but I appreciate him and his contribution and everything that he's contributed to the VW scene, which is so much larger than just cow luck. So, uh, Greg's been a great guy and it was great to have this conversation with him and learn so much more about the history of fat performance and all these things that bring it together. So grateful for that. And again, uh, go check out, uh, the book that Craig Watkins, his friend has written. It's a great read. And it really, if, if you love the history of the podcast, you'll love his book as well. So if you like that podcast and I'm sure you did, Make sure you share it with all your friends. If you want to support the podcast, go to letstalkdubs.com. We have some new shirts that just hit the store, so make sure you go check those out. Some pretty cool new logos and designs. And uh, I got some, uh, I'm going to update the sticker picture because I got a little more variety of stickers that are pretty cool. So I appreciate you guys for listening and let's do a couple shout outs. First shout out goes to Martin Smith. He reached out to me on the website and left me a message and said, Bill, Found your podcast and have binged many of the other the older episodes. I have a 69 Beetle that you inspire me to regularly repair, but then I listen to your Arrested in Mexico podcast. Very thankful you're back with your family. My heart's heavy for those that remain in prison and disappointment and anger for corruption. Your podcast is valuable because it puts real people and your relationships in the face of suffering that goes on in our world. Looking forward to the next episodes of Let's Talk Dubs and Arrested in Mexico. So that's Martin Smith. Give him a shot. Also, a shout out to my buddy, Brent Miller, tried to low-key, is <laughs> a friend of mine, picked up some merch, give him a shout out on the podcast for support, and also Adam Powell, appreciate Adam, used to be from Vegas, now he's living down in uh, Phoenix, in Florence, Arizona, 
and picked up some merch and we appreciate Adam, man. And, and Adam's OG VW guy from, from Vegas back in the day. So don't get, don't get it twisted. Like he's from Phoenix cause he ain't, he's from over here. He's from Vegas. So, but yeah, shout out to everybody for supporting the podcast. Hopefully I'll see some of you guys down in Southern California next week and make sure you stop by and say hi. So I'll see you at the ID buzz event and also be at Octo. So I probably am bringing shirts to sell at Octo. So, uh, that's it for me this week, guys. We've got so many more podcasts coming up. I'm super excited for these ones that, that are coming up. Um, I, I just wish I, w- I if I had 50 more guys, we'd be dropping to a week. But hopefully you guys can hang on. It's a lot of time to listen. And I appreciate uh, appreciate everything you guys do to help support the podcast. Make sure spread the word, share the podcast. We love it when you share the podcast because it just keeps on growing and growing. So until next week, guys, later. Probably don't know that there's a new Volkswagen out that doesn't look like a Volkswagen. 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 Volkswagen.